Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. This time on the show, we explore women's relationship with money. We start out talking to the young founder of an angel investing boot camp for women. Then we delve into why some women have such a hard time valuing themselves and charging for their services. Because there's one thing to increase the price, and then there's another thing to be comfortable with asking for it and like really feeling like, okay, yeah, darn it, you know, uh, what I'm delivering, it's worth this. Some of us aren't that keen to pay full price for other people's services either. Coming up on The Broad Experience. Women-owned companies start out with far less outside investment than male-owned firms. Debate about why rages. Many say investment networks and venture capital firms are boys' clubs that can only relate to people who look like them. Others say women do a lousier job of pitching or just don't ask for money in the first place. Natalia Alberti Noguera is on a mission to give more female entrepreneurs a good start. She's the founder and CEO of the Pipeline Fellowship, which trains women to become angel investors in small, women-owned companies. An angel investor is someone with a fairly high net worth who invests their own money in a company and, like any investor, hopes for a good return. The idea is that if more women become educated investors, more female-owned companies will get the funding they need to make a go of it. Natalia says the Pipeline Fellowship focuses on funding women-owned companies with a social mission and getting them into the public sphere. Tom's Shoes, Ben and Jerry's, Warby Parker, who are the people, i.e. social entrepreneurs, who are making the headlines, once again, white guys? Actually, Warby Parker is sponsoring today's episode. More on that later. Nothing wrong with white guys. She's just saying... That's why I'm so super committed because guess what? I do see the women social entrepreneurs and the women of color. As a queer Latina, it's so important for me to also not just talk about gender. There are different types of diversity out there, age, race, ethnicity, also different sorts of backgrounds and professional backgrounds. And so that's something that I'm committed to doing. You know, we have the the body shop, you know, a need erotic, you know, we need, we need more stories, we need more people, because guess what, the women social entrepreneurs are out there, they're just not getting the funding, and that's what we're looking to solve. In the two and a half years since its first boot camp, the Pipeline Fellowship has trained more than 70 women investors. The year it started, women made up just over 12% of angel investors. Last year, women were almost 22% of the total. Natalia says the problem isn't just that there aren't enough women investors who may see more potential in another woman's idea, but basically entrepreneurs who aren't white men just don't have the same confidence to put themselves forward in the first place. In 2012, out of all the companies that pitched to U.S. angel investors, only 16% were women-led and only 6% were minority-led. From that 16% of women-led startups that actually pitched, 
20, I'd say about 25% secured funding. From that 6% of um, minority-led startups that pitched about, I'd say, 18% secured funding. So the other issue that I see when I talk um, and I meet with entrepreneurs and prim- specifically also women and people of color is this hesitation to step up to the plate so I have this motto that I share and it's like I have many missions many agendas and um, this current one is getting out the uh, the call to action and the call to action in the sense of telling people pitching isn't a zero-sum game I know so many entrepreneurs who think about hesitate to even um, go out to pitch because they're coming at it from, I'm not ready yet. You know, like, am I not actually secure the funding? And what they don't realize is that actually, even if they don't secure the funding that day, the feedback that they might get from these potential investors could get them closer to a business model that will meet market needs. And maybe the potential investors who are, quote unquote, judging, you know, that pitch event, maybe they're not interested in agriculture. They're not interested in food tech or pet tech. However, they might know someone who is. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly women and people call entrepreneurs, we don't have, first of all, we don't have access to capital and also we don't have access to networks. So go out and meet people and pitch even if you're not sure you'll make the cut. Something that came up during our conversation was the psychological side of money, which really fascinates me. Natalia told the story of one woman who had tried and tried to get funding for her company with its mission of doing good, but it was a for-profit she simply couldn't persuade enough funders, most of them women, to give her money. And then finally she, you know, decided to throw in the towel in terms of, you know, just uh, the whole concept of the for-profit social venture. And she, she started a nonprofit, and she went back to all those people that she was talking about, primarily women. And these same women who had a hard time writing a check for her social, for-profit social venture, they started writing checks to her nonprofit. And this brings up a lot of issues that we're talking about women and money, even that I deal with as, you know, as the founder and CEO of the Pipeline Fellowship, which is an angel investing bootcamp for women. People hear money and women and they're thinking philanthropy. They're thinking it's a donation, it's grants. And so it's it's almost like I'm 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 doing the heavy lifting in terms of getting more women to become angels and also the heavy lifting of changing the conversation that society as a whole has regarding women and money and and bringing in the investing focus so fast forward or like let's say backtrack to you know this woman social entrepreneur who decided to start her nonprofit. the other issue and this is very heteronormative and i do want to bring this up that that came up was that for a lot of these women they were married and you know charity that was something that they just owned as individuals in this relationship if they wanted to donate to a cause that's you know something that they did on their own time as soon as it became about an investment it was a conversation that many of them felt that they had to have with their spouse I don't even know where to start with that. Why do women need to consult their husbands if it's the same amount of money they'd otherwise give as a donation? Does this come down to the commonly cited reason of too many women not understanding enough about investing? Or is it something else? If you have theories about this, please post a comment under this episode at thebroadexperience.com.
We've got Warby Parker sponsoring today's episode of The Broad Experience. If you don't know Warby Parker, it has the coolest selection of vintage-inspired glasses, and they're all highly affordable. If you're not sure what to get, try Warby Parker's Home Try-On program. The Home Try-On program is really easy to use. You select five pairs of glasses you like, wait for them to arrive, pick out your favorite style, and send them back using their prepaid return shipping label. There's no obligation to purchase, and it's quite fun looking at yourself in the mirror with all these different glasses. The bottom line is you can support this show by ordering your glasses online today at www.warbyparker.com. Use the promo code BROAD during the checkout, and you'll receive free expedited three-day air shipping. Don't forget, that's warbyparker.com, promo code B-R-O-A-D. Thank you. Next, I sat down with Jaquette Timmons. Some of you may know her from her media appearances, or maybe you've read her book, Financial Intimacy. Jaquette started working on Wall Street in the late 1980s. She eventually managed other people's money, but soon realized what really interested her was the way they behaved around money, what motivated them to do or not do certain things with it. Now she's a financial behaviorist with her own business, coaching people about money. I started by talking about something I've discussed on the show before and as a radio reporter. I've done some stories in the past in segments about women and negotiating Mm -hmm. and the fact that many women don't like negotiating. Mm -hmm. They find it extremely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And frankly, a lot of women have a problem valuing themselves. You know, there's this issue about how much am I worth? Oh, am I? Oh, no, am I really worth that much? I mean, this is a big deal, isn't it? It's a a huge, huge, huge deal. I mean, I don't recall the statistics off the top of my head, but there was one study done talking about, you know, when a woman graduates from college and the difference in disparity in income between she and a male counterpart simply because he asked for $5,000 more and she didn't. And what does that, you know, net out to over the course of their career? And it's something like $750,000 simply because he asked for more at the very outset. So I think it's a huge issue when it comes to negotiating your salary. It's not something that we've been taught, at least my generation. The other thing, though, is I think that also translates into when women create their own businesses. And I know even my own self, you know, I have had to have friends tell me at times, you're not charging enough. And, you know, for me to go through the work the inner work that was necessary to be, you know, to get to the point where I was like, okay, I feel comfortable increasing the, because there's one thing to increase the price. And then there's another thing to be comfortable with asking for it and like really feeling like, okay, yeah, darn it. You know what I'm delivering. It's worth this. Um, So I think that that's it too. But I remember I wrote a piece for another publication and I talked about how we have to work out our family stuff in therapy and not in our businesses because what we don't realize is a lot of your family stuff, you know, plays out in how you feel about yourself. And if you don't feel quote unquote worthy, that's going to show up in the prices that you charge and in the way in which you negotiate or choose not to negotiate. These feelings women have about money can get complicated. 
In early October, I wrote a blog post on the Broad Experience site called When Women Work for Free. I asked readers to talk about their own experiences of doing something for nothing in the hope it might help their career in some way. One reader, a longtime career coach in Europe, wrote back, and after answering my initial question, she sort of turned it around. I read part of her response to Jacquette. The incidence of women not being prepared to either pay the market price for services or expect something for free, generally in my experience, is higher than men. Yet the same women would think nothing of spending €250 on shoes or €150 on getting their hair highlighted. Guilty, definitely. Women have to stop expecting someone to take care of them and to invest in their careers. When they understand the value of other people's services and time, then perhaps they will start to have an idea of the value of their own. Wholeheartedly agree with her. <laughs> yay, yay, yay to her. Um, so here's my thought on that. I've gotten to the point now where I will do selective pro bono speaking engagements, but they are always for a strategic reason. And if it is more than, you know, a one time, well, typically it's never more than a one time event, but if it's like a full blown workshop or something like that, I'll only do it for a faith based organization. I've told people that have asked me to do things um, and to do it for free that you don't fit a faith based profile. I'm not doing it for free. Um, when I speak, sometimes it's paid and sometimes it isn't. If it's not paid, it's because it is some, it's a platform that is going to be greater than probably even what I would have gotten from a monetary standpoint for that particular speaking engagement. So each, I think each person has to come up with what the boundaries and the parameters are for them. But what I will say is that I don't negotiate my fee. My fee is my fee. And if someone is unable to afford it, I'm happy to put together a payment plan for them, but I, I don't discount my fee at all. And you know, I, I, you're, you're the person who wrote in talked about how you know the, the, someone may, this weren't, these weren't her words, but basically someone may want to nickel and dime you, but then they'll go right out and spend $150. And I know because I've, I've experienced that, you know, someone asking me, oh, you know, that's too much. And then you hear them going out to, and I live in New York City, right? So they you know, they tell you they're going out and they tell you the name of the place that they're going to and you know <laughs> that they just dropped $150 on, on dinner. dinner. <laughs> So it's like, where are your priorities? I asked her to unpack that a bit. What is going on there? One thing she thinks is what she calls the culture of immediate gratification. Dinner, for instance, gives instant pleasurable results. A single coaching session may not. And one of the things I speak to in my book is this whole idea of, of how we live in a microwave society. And, you know, I think the fact that you can put something in the microwave and it can be hot in a minute that has translated into so many things in terms of what we expect. Including from relationships. Including from relationships. And so I think that people expect the same thing when it comes to that, that mindset translates into when, they, when it comes to doing business with somebody else. Like they don't really realize that you're cultivating a relationship, or at least that's the goal, that, that you're cultivating a relationship, that you're also not just paying for that person's time in that moment. You're really paying for their expertise, their knowledge, their experience, their insights, 
and all of that that has been cultivated over the entire lifespan of their career, not just that 45 or 60 minute time that they're spending with you, and you're paying for their ability to kind of, you know, think about all of those things and come up with a solution that's targeted just specifically for you. I think people just need to think about all of what goes into it, and then they might respect the price more. Then, going back to what my correspondent said earlier about women's stinginess with some things but not others, I brought up a friend of mine who has her own internet services business. She told me a few months ago something she said she'd never admit publicly. Her female clients are cheap. She said men never quibble over the price of her services. Women always do. She finds it incredibly frustrating. You know what I'd be curious to know? And, and so I, I'm, I'm going to deflect answering because I don't know if I have enough information. But what I'd be curious to know is if those same women do that strategy with men. So is it an issue of I'm speaking with another woman, therefore we should have this you know, immediate affinity, and of course she should be willing to give me a discount. Is it that mentality? Because then that means that you are looking at the woman's solidarity in a very negative way. Because you're assuming that because we you know, are of the same gender, well then automatically you should hook me up. <laughs> I've no way of knowing if my friend's clients try to bargain with men as well, but if you have theories on this, again, please let me know on the website. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jaquette also brought up something I feel is almost taboo for a lot of women to talk about. I had to work on really wrapping my head around it's okay to make money with ease. I think we all grow up with some sort of conditioning around money. And one of my conditionings was you had to work hard for it. If you didn't work hard for it, you didn't get it. And because her work came so naturally to her, it took a while not to feel guilty about doing a four-hour job and being well paid for it. The other thing I don't really think we grasp is that we've, we've really... We're now really steeped into a knowledge-based society, but that wasn't the case. We're st- we were still in the early transition of that, if you will, in the late 80s and the early 90s. And I think that the mindset and the mentality and the approach of how we did business and how we valued um, the time that it took to do something was very much entrenched in that you work an eight-hour shift, you work really hard, that kind of thought process. So I think even though I never worked in that kind of environment, the fact that that was culturally what was surrounding me, I think that I just picked up some of those um, beliefs about the correlation and the relationship between the dynamic of work and what you get paid for the work that you do. Finally, I brought up something that came from a few podcasts ago. You may remember Jodie Detchen, who was in show 25, which I called Killing the Ideal Woman. One of the things she talks about in her book is many women's need to be nice, or be seen to be nice anyway. She believes this puts not all, but a lot of women in a mindset where effectively they think of earning a lot of money as almost dirty. 
Doing good was more important to many of her interviewees than earning a market rate. Now, I'm thinking aloud here, but this may actually relate back to what Natalia Alberti Nogueira was talking about, where women feel it's okay to give money away to a social entrepreneurship venture, but investing it? That means they may actually make money back, and perhaps that's what makes them uncomfortable. The idea of making money from a venture that's trying to do some good in the world. Maybe this is all tied up with our perceptions of ourselves as nice people, or people who should be seen to be nice. As I said earlier, it's complicated. Jaquette says she's seen this ambivalent attitude to money in plenty of women and she'd like to change it, if for no other reason than that women don't save enough for their later years. And so I think this whole notion of it's not cool to earn a lot of money or if I earn a lot of money that that that, that means it's materialistic of me, I think a lot of that has to do with the way in which capitalism has, and I'm going to use the word, has been pimped. And because I don't think capitalism in and of itself is bad. I think it's what people do with it. And I think if people recognize that if I you know, do well, that allows me to have more resources to help others so that the greater good can do well. But so often people want to um, make doing well seem like a bad thing. And so this whole idea of... Um, I shouldn't earn this much or it's too materialistic of me to do that. That Whomever is thinking that, they have a lot of inner work to do on their own relationship with money. Jaquette Timmons. That's the broad experience for this time. Again, if you have thoughts about this show, please post them under this episode at thebroadexperience.com or on the show's Facebook page. I'll be posting some show notes as well. The Broad Experience is supported by the Mule Radio Syndicate, which hosts other intriguing podcasts. One of those is This Is Actually Happening, first-person stories about what happens when everything suddenly changes. Also, Everything Sounds, which explores the role sound plays in art, science, and culture. And if you can kick in a few bucks to support what I'm doing, please go to the support tab on thebroadexperience.com. And if you like what you hear, please write a quick review on iTunes. It helps get the show noticed, and I definitely want the show to attract more ears. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.